Thanks for joining us today for the Ramp Church podcast. We pray that you'll be uplifted, empowered and revived by this week's message. If you'd like to know more about Ramp Church Manchester or would like to partner with us in giving, visit us over on our website, ramp.church/mcr or find us on social media. Now let's get into this week's message. All right, well, just before we open our Bibles and receive from the Word, let's pray together and really position our hearts to receive from God. Father, we thank you for your Word. We thank you for the gift of Scripture. And Father, we do what James says in James chapter 1, to receive with meekness the engrafted Word, which is able to save your souls. Father, we come tonight with meekness, with humility, with a readiness and a willingness to listen. And we know that your word is able to bring salvation as it leads us to Jesus Christ. We know that we're able to hear your voice through your word. So, Father, give us an ear to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. May we be in rhythm with you. And, Father, may your word come in with life and revelation in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, eventually we are going to land in our Bibles in Romans chapter 6. So if you'd like to go ahead and turn there... You can do that. We're going to make a couple of stops along the way, one in Matthew 1, one in John 1, Lord willing, but ultimately get to Romans chapter 6. As Pastor Joe mentioned, we have baptism coming up this Saturday, so in anticipation of baptism, we're going to be talking about that thematically from the Word of God. Now, let me give you a little bit of a heads up. If you've already been baptized, or maybe for some reason you're not planning to get baptized this Saturday... That doesn't mean you need to sort of disengage and tune out and say, well, baptism, been there, done that. No, now is a time to lean in because it is inevitable when you talk about baptism that you have to talk about the gospel. Baptism gets us grounded in the gospel. And one of Paul's most clear messages about baptism is found in Romans chapter 6. And that message is not written to people who are about to get baptized. It's actually written to people who have already been baptized. And Paul is reminding them of what happened in those waters. Each of us need to be reminded of what happened in the waters of baptism. And then certainly, if you are planning to be baptized, you need to go in with a posture of faith, ready to receive everything that God has for you. So before we get to Romans 6 and start unpacking the finer details of baptism, let's kind of zoom out and go really big picture. Let me make a few statements about what this is, and then again, we'll look at it through Scripture in just a moment. Baptism is not just an announcement of your faith. It is an enactment of your faith. Baptism doesn't just acknowledge God's grace. It activates God's grace. Baptism is not just a mental ascent to the gospel. It is an immersive experience within the gospel. See, baptism doesn't just recognize something that's already happened. Okay, you believed in Jesus. You've given your life to him. You've gotten saved. And now let me recognize that later through baptism. It's not just a past-focused event It's a present-focused event. Something supernatural happens when you get 
baptized. It's an immersion within the gospel itself. Now, if baptism is an immersion within the gospel, we need to ask the bigger question, what is the gospel? And there are a lot of different ways we could answer that question using the language of Scripture. But one of the ways we could summarize it, being inspired from Ephesians chapter 2, is by saying the gospel is the demonstration of God's grace, God's saving grace. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2 that we are saved by grace through faith. A wonderful summary of what God has done on our behalf. You see, grace is God's initiative. It's God's idea. It's God at work. We are saved by grace. It is His work for us through Jesus Christ. And all we have to do is receive that grace through faith. So salvation is a gift of grace that is received by faith. God's grace received through faith, that is the essence of salvation. But if salvation is the demonstration of God's grace, now we have to ask a third question, right? So the first question is, what is baptism? Well, it's an immersion within the gospel. Second question, what is the gospel? It's the demonstration of God's grace. Third question, well, if the gospel is the demonstration of God's grace, from what does grace save us? It's clear in the New Testament that grace is the solution to some big problem, right? Because God's grace comes as the answer to man's dilemma. What is man's dilemma? What is the problem if the church is called to carry good news to the world? What is that good news addressing? What is it that we're confronting and declaring that God has done something on your behalf? What is it that we need to be rescued from? How is grace the answer? So in response to that question from what does grace save us, people commonly give four different answers. Each of these answers, I think, are biblically informed. I think each of these answers are accurate. However, I think each of them are also incomplete. And if something is accurate yet incomplete, it can ultimately be misleading if you don't strive to understand it in a comprehensive way. So here's four common answers that people give to the question, from what does grace save us? Number one, many people answer by saying the law of Moses. Grace saves us from the law. Now, again, I think that's very biblically informed. We'll read it later in Romans chapter 6, verse 14. Paul says, for we are not under the law, but under grace. It seems that there was a transfer from the law of Moses to the grace of God, and that was enacted through the gospel. So yes, I agree, that's a biblically informed answer. A second answer that people give to that question, from what does grace save us, is very simple, the wrath of God. To which I say again, yes and amen. The Bible says in Romans that, now that we are saved, we are no longer appointed unto wrath. Yes, grace certainly does save us from the wrath of God and everything that comes with that concept and that idea. A third answer people give to the question, from what does grace save us, is this. The distortion of God. That Jesus came to save us from our wrong ideas about who God is. That prior to Jesus, every view of God may have had a different level of accuracy, but all of them incomplete. So we were distorted in the way that we were thinking about God. And certainly I would agree with that and say, that, well, that's a biblically informed answer. 
Because Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so he came as the perfect picture of who the Father is. As Bill Johnson often says, an American pastor, Jesus is perfect theology. If you want to know what God is like, look at him. So Jesus did come to save us from the distortion of God. And a fourth answer people might give is the power of Satan. From what does grace save us? It saves us from the power of Satan. And again, yes to that, I say amen. One of the most common things Jesus did in the gospel is that he would cast out demons. And he would say, the finger of God, I'm casting out demons by the finger of God. And it's a sign that the kingdom has come upon you. Jesus certainly delivers man from the power of Satan. I believe that's a biblically informed answer. However, I think that though each of these are accurate, they are not complete and comprehensive within themselves. I think they're all talking about the consequence of the central issue and still dancing around just a little bit the central issue. I believe if we were to stop by answering with those four answers then we would be talking about the fruit of something, but not the root system that is creating the fruit. So what is the root system? What is the central issue? What is it that grace comes to save us from? I believe the answer is this, the power of sin. God, through his grace, saves us from sin itself. What is sin? Sin is that propensity within man, both in his desires and actions, to rebel against God. Sin is that propensity to reject God's leadership and choose our own leadership instead. And I believe that is the central problem that we find in scripture. You see, if we answer the question from what does grace save us with one of these four other answers and try to make that the central problem, I do think it's a bit misleading. You see, the law of Moses was not the central problem. Paul says in Romans chapter 7 that the law is spiritual. I am carnal, sold under sin. Why does he say that? Because as he's talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ, he doesn't want his audience to get confused and start thinking that the law was the great problem man faced. He's saying, no, the law was never the problem. The law is spiritual. I was the problem. It's not that God expected too much. It's that I was too wayward. So God did not send Jesus in order to lower his expectation upon man. That is not... The message of the gospel. If you think that is the message of the gospel, hang out in the Sermon on the Mount for just a little bit. And find out how Jesus puts great expectation on the behavior of man. So the law is not the issue that God needed to rescue us from. It was our response to the law. And Paul said the law was given because of sin in order to reveal what was there. The law was the diagnosis, not the sickness. If you are dealing with a sickness, you do not need the diagnosis to be erased. You need the sickness to be removed. The law was God's diagnosis for our great sickness. But don't confuse the diagnosis with the sickness. God is not bad because he diagnosed what was disease, what, the disease that was on the inside of us. God gave the law to reveal the issue of rebellion within our own hearts. 
So the law of Moses was not the problem, but yes, grace does save us from the law, not because the law is bad, but because once you're healed from a disease, you don't need the diagnosis anymore. The second part, the wrath of God. Does grace save us from the wrath of God? Yes, but the wrath of God is not random outburst of anger from God. The wrath of God is a demonstration of his role as judge. And all of his judgments are altogether righteous and true. And the reason why the wrath of God was set against man is not because God made himself our enemy, but because we made himself his enemy. That's what the Bible says in the book of James, that whoever becomes a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. That would be like a criminal going into a courtroom and the judge pronouncing a just judgment and the criminal looking at the judge and saying, you're my enemy. The judge is not anyone's enemy. He's simply enforcing what the law has already declared as just. And so the wrath of God is not a random outburst of anger from God toward man. No, the wrath of God is a demonstration of his justice as judge. And what we need to be saved from is the reason why we're facing the wrath of God, which is our own rebellion and sin. You see, if we see Jesus only as saving us from the wrath of God, and we skip the bit about our own sin and our own rebellion, then we see the gospel in this way. Jesus came to chill God out. As though God and his anger was the problem. And Jesus on the cross convinced him to stop being so mad. But the gospel did not come to change God's mind about us. The gospel came to change our hearts toward God. We need to be saved from our own sin, which then results in us being saved from his wrath. Now let's talk about the distortion of God. Did Jesus come to reveal God and save us from wrong ideas about God. Yes, but those wrong ideas are birthed within hearts that are in rebellion against God. Because the heart of man, when it wants to justify its own sin, will create an idol that alleviates guilt. In other words, heretical ideas about God do not begin in the mind, they begin in the heart. Jesus said in Mark chapter 7 that up out of the heart of men come evil thoughts. And sometimes we think the head precedes the heart when the heart precedes the head. Wrong ideas about God do not come because we're really trying to figure him out and we just get it wrong. Wrong ideas about God, idolatrous ideas about God come when we have affections that are straying away from God and we want to justify those affections. And so the way in which Jesus saves us from the distortion of God is, again, by targeting the, the root cause behind the distortion, and that is the wayward affection of man. That's why Paul deals with this issue in Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 2. He says, man, though he knows the truth, wants to suppress the truth. And the way in which he suppresses the truth is he takes the glory of God and he turns it into idols. And he starts worshiping the creature rather than the creator. We end up with idols when we allow our affection for sin to go in a direction that is not repentant, that is not broken. And lastly, the power of Satan. Does the grace of God save us from the power of Satan? Yes, but Satan only has power where he is given access through sin. 
See, that's why the Bible says in James, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. The reason it says submit to God first is because the devil has no power in a life that is submitted to God. He only has power when we are in rebellion to God. That's why Satan did not come into the Garden of Eden bearing arms. He didn't come to force Adam and Eve into submission. He came in with deception and lies so that Adam and Eve would rebel against God because the moment they rebel against God is the moment that he gains access and authority into the earth. So when you submit to God, you are now properly aligned under authority so that you can be in authority to withstand the devil. So yes, grace saves you from the power of Satan, but it is a byproduct of being saved from sin. Now, with that framework of the gospel, let's go to Romans chapter 6. Actually, before we get there, let's read a couple of scriptures. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. I just want to show you how in the New Testament, once you start looking for it and listening for it, you begin to hear everywhere the message that grace saves us from sin. The, the gospel message is not just that Jesus saves us from the consequences of sin, is that Jesus saves us from sin itself. So a couple of verses that declare this quite explicitly. First is Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. In this moment, Joseph is being addressed by an angel. And the angel is explaining the whole reality of the virgin birth of Jesus, that Mary as a virgin has conceived by the Holy Spirit, and she is carrying Jesus, the Son of God. And the angel gives Jesus... I'm sorry, the angel gives Joseph these instructions. Matthew 121. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. One of the earliest declarations about Jesus in the New Testament is that he will save his people from their sins. This message is repeated through the mouth of John the Baptist. And we'll look at that in John chapter 1, verse 29. John the Baptist has been preparing the way of the Lord. And then we reach a moment in John 1 where Jesus is not just coming, he has come. And G John looks at him and makes this declaration. This is John chapter 1, verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He destroys that inward propensity to rebel against God, to choose our own way. He takes the sin of the world upon himself and he destroys it and takes it away. Now, that framework of the gospel may be, you know, familiar to some of us. It may be unfamiliar to some of us. But what I want to do with that framework is now take it into the concept of baptism. And let's look at it with fresh eyes. So Romans chapter 6. We said earlier that baptism is an immersive experience within the gospel. Now that we've defined the gospel, let's go to Romans chapter 6 and put those two ideas together. Baptism is an immersive experience within the gospel. The gospel is the grace of God demonstrated toward man to save him from sin. In Romans 6, we're going to put these two ideas together. The Apostle Paul starts off by asking some questions. I love the Bible's questions. It's actually a pretty fun exercise to go through the Bible, especially the gospels, and highlight all the questions of Jesus. 
they have a way of getting at you. First, two, first question from Jesus in the Gospel of John. This is just a footnote. I wasn't planning to mention this. First question from Jesus in the Gospel of John. The first words from Jesus in the Gospel of John are this. What do you seek? What a question from Jesus. You know his next statement in the Gospel of John? Come and see. What do you seek? Come and see. First question from God. We go back into the garden. Adam, where are you? Over and over you get these questions from God, and they have a way of revealing so much about where we are. So we get to Romans chapter 6, and the apostle Paul starts asking some questions. What shall we say then? In light of this good news that he just unpacked in Romans 1 through 5, justification by faith and the gospel of grace, in light of all of this, he comes to this question. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? What a relevant question for our generation. In light of the good news of grace, does that give us a license to continue in sin? And Paul answers his own question emphatically in the next verse. Verse 2, certainly not. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. And in emphatically answering himself, Paul is establishing this reality that the gospel of Jesus is not just a gospel of forgiveness, though it is. The gospel of Jesus is a gospel of change. It transforms us, and we live differently after we encounter the grace of God. I love this moment in the book of Acts where Barnabas goes to Antioch because a revival has been breaking out. And the apostles in Jerusalem know that someone needs to go and steward the work. So they send Barnabas to go and pastor it and cultivate it. When he gets there, it says this. When he had come and seen the grace of God. The grace of God was something he could see in operation. Because it caused transformation within a community. you got to ask the question. When people look at me, can they see the grace of God? And so the apostle Paul asked that. What shall we say then? Shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. Why? Because the gospel is not just a gospel of forgiveness. Though it is, it's also a gospel of change. And this idea of the twofold gospel, forgiveness and transformation, is found in the words of Jesus. In John chapter 8, when he's dealing with the woman caught in the act of adultery, very guilty. Very, very much guilty. She can't deny it. He looks at her and he summarizes the gospel by saying this. Neither do I condemn you. Forgiveness, go and sin no more, change. When we encounter Jesus, those two things come into operation in our lives, the forgiveness of God and the transformation of God. And then Paul begins to explain how the gospel of change functions in our lives. He says, how shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Now, if you've not read the rest of Romans chapter 6, his question here. In verse number 2 is a bit confusing. How shall we die to sin living any longer in it? You're, you're writing as though you're addressing dead people. I'm reading this and I'm very much alive. I'm still breathing. I'm still moving. I'm not dead. So, Paul, what do you mean? How can you claim that we've already died and somehow that death has transformed our relationship with sin? He explains himself in the next verse, in verse number 3. And do you not know? Now, before we read the rest of his explanation, let's pause on that phrase. Or do you not know? Do you know how many areas we are living in unnecessary deficiencies simply because we don't know? 
We don't know what all God, God has done. We don't know what God has given. We don't know what he has provided. That's why Paul in another epistle said this. The Holy Spirit comes to reveal to us the things that have been freely given. Because as long as we don't know, we don't know. This is one of the reasons why you need to be attentive and consistent to reading your Bible. Because the more you read this word, the more you know the things that God has given you. So Paul says, or do you not know? So I guess I'm responding, no, Paul, we didn't know. So why don't you tell us what you know? Or do you not know that as many of us, as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? Paul is saying that your baptism was not just a recognition of his death. Your baptism was an identification with his death. You're not just acknowledging that he died for you. You're acknowledging that he died as you. As many of us as were baptized, were baptized into his death. Verse 4. Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father... Even so, we should walk in newness of life. Verses 3 and 4, Paul talks about the comprehensive work of baptism. That when you go into the water, you're stepping into his death. When you go under the water, you're stepping into his burial. But when you come out of the water, you're stepping into his resurrection. And now you get to experience newness of life. You see, the good news is that on Saturday... We're not going to put you under the water and hold you under the water. Because it's not just a baptism into death and burial. You come out of the water into resurrection. And in the Christian narrative, resurrection is not just life after death. Resurrection is life free from the power of sin and the consequences of sin. That's why it says in 2 Peter chapter 3 that we look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. God's coming new creation will be filled with righteousness and absent of wickedness. And you step into God's new world through the power of resurrection. But Paul is saying you don't have to wait on resurrection to be resurrected. You can die before you die, and you can be buried before you're buried, and you can be raised from the dead before you're raised from the dead. Because it happens now through the waters of baptism. Death, burial, and resurrection as an advanced reality. The day that is coming then has come now through the waters of baptism. Paul continues... For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. Listen, if I wasn't reading the Bible, I would not say what Paul just said. That once you're baptized, you're no longer a slave of sin. Because it makes me too uncomfortable. Because I'm sure Paul knew his own condition. He was pastoring. He knew the condition of his congregation and the issues he's fa- he faced within there. And there are all their you know, stuff. And we read about all of their stuff and all the other epistles. 
But Paul was so confident in the gospel, he said, it's so effective in its operation that once you're baptized, you're no longer a slave of sin. You see, the gospel is much more audacious than we give it credit for. Because it preaches not just forgiveness, it preaches change. And Paul said that the change is so profound, it's as though you've been set free from slavery into a new reality. And then he explains how in verse 7. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now it's very easy to read that and say, yeah, the day that I stop breathing, that's when I'll be free from sin. That's not the death Paul's referring to. He's talking about your death in the water of baptism. And he's saying the moment you die in baptism, that's the moment you are free from sin. Verse 8. Now if we died with Christ, we believe we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. Notice verse 10. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. The death that he died, he died to sin once for everyone. That death was so powerful. It only had to happen once. And in him, we all die to sin the way he died to sin. You see, in graveyards, there's not a lot of sin going on. Why? Because sin can't tempt dead men. They no longer have affection to pull on, no longer desire for the things of this world. And Paul is saying, when you step into a Christian church, in some ways, you're stepping into a graveyard. Because they have died indeed to sin. The world cannot pull on their affections anymore. Paul said it differently in Galatians when he said, God forbid that I boast in anything save the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom I have been crucified to the world, and the world has been crucified to me. We've died to one another. We can no longer have mutual attraction for one another because we're both dead. So Paul is saying the death that he died, he died to sin. Not for himself, but for us. The death that he died, he died to sin once for all. And the life that he lives, he lives to God. Now, I love verse 11 because it carries within it an Alabama word. It says, likewise, you also reckon. Say reckon. reckon. If you're not familiar, that's a word from Alabama. Well, I reckon. <laughs> likewise, you also reckon yourselves. What does reckon mean? It's to consider it true personally, to be convinced of it, and to apply it in your life as though it is true. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin and alive to God. Baptism is the day of reckoning. Where you take the principle of the gospel and you reckon it as a personal reality within your life. But this day of reckoning is a twofold reckoning. The Christian life is a twofold reckoning. And way too often we make it a one part reckoning. Dead to sin. If we get that far, we just kind of walk around paranoid. I'm dead to sin. I'm dead to sin. I'm dead to sin. I'm dead to sin. But like I said, this is not just a funeral we're going to. It's a resurrection we're going to. Wow. 
Jesus didn't just die to sin, he was raised from the dead. So the twofold reckoning of the Christian life is I am dead, but I'm alive. So wake up every morning not just saying I'm dead to sin, I'm dead to sin. You wake up and say, I'm dead to sin, and I'm alive to God. I'm alive to God. I'm alive to God. You see, on the other side of baptism, you ought to be able to interact with God in an entirely new way. Just like Jesus, when he came out of the waters, boom, the heavens were opened. He heard the voice of his Father, and the Spirit descended like a dove. That's the newness of life you can operate in because of the gospel. And because of your experience with the gospel through the waters of baptism. Now, verses 12 and 13 are really important, and they deserve, honestly, kind of their own space that we don't have time to get into today, because it talks about the lifestyle of discipleship after baptism, because Paul talks about your responsibility to actively, intentionally enforce these realities that are now true in your life, because on the other side of baptism, you don't live magically free from temptation, but you do live in authority over it if you choose to operate in that authority. And that's what Paul deals with in verses 12 and 13. He says, therefore. In other words, what he's about to say is not a charge to self-will. It's not a charge to self-discipline. It is built on the reality of what God has accomplished for us through Jesus Christ. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. In other words, after baptism, you have a choice. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body. He continues, that you should obey it in its lust, and do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. And then I love verse 14. He takes his whole argument, verses 1 through 13, and he summarizes it in verse 14. He says this, on the other side of baptism, what's your new reality? For sin shall not have dominion over you. For you're not under the law, but under grace. The law exposed a sin that it had no power to change. After the law exposed the sin, grace came to eradicate the sin. And what Romans 6.14 is teaching us is this. That prior to the gospel, sin did have dominion over us. What does it mean when it says something has dominion over you? It means that it's your master. Anytime it calls your name, you have to respond. Anytime it knocks on the door, you have to open. Why? Because you're under its dominion. But Paul is saying, because of the gospel experienced through baptism, sin shall not have dominion over you. That doesn't mean it won't call your name. But it does mean you don't have to respond. That doesn't mean it will never knock on your door. But it does mean you don't have to open the door. It reminds me of what God told Cain in Genesis chapter 4. When he said, Cain, sin is crouching at the door. And its desire is for you. But you must rule over it. And just like us, Cain chose not to rule over sin. But he came under the dominion of sin. And sin had him and devoured him. And he was marked for the rest of his life. But unlike Cain... God has provided a way to remove the mark and to put us back into a place of authority over the sin that once devoured us. You see, the blood of Jesus, listen to this. The blood of Jesus removes the mark of sin. And the cross of Jesus destroys the authority of sin. Watchman Nee said it like this. The blood of Jesus is for the sin and the cross of Jesus is for the sinner. God washes away what you have done and he gives you the power 
to live in a different reality in newness of life. For sin shall not have dominion over you. Imagine what that means for you. You don't have to live at the mercy of addiction. You don't have to live at the mercy of sin patterns. You don't have to live at the mercy of cycles, wondering when the next time is you're going to fall and cave to that temptation. Sin shall not have dominion over you, not because of your self-discipline, but because Jesus is the Savior of the world. And according to Matthew 1.21, he shall save his people from their sins. I want to invite the band to join me, and we're going to pray and respond to this message tonight. Thank you, Jesus. God's amazing, and God's crazy. If I was him, and I knew me, I'd be afraid to say that stuff. But he knows you through and through, and he still chose to make these claims about you. That in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, salvation has come. If you would stand on your feet this evening. You know, there are many pictures of baptism that occur in Scripture before we ever get to the New Testament. It would take quite a while to unpack each of those. Part of me doesn't want to go down that road because there's so many, so many ways in which Scripture anticipates what's going to happen through the work of the cross. But one of them is through the deliverance of Israel from Egypt when they came through the Red Sea. You see, for years they lived under taskmasters. For years they lived as slaves. Not just for like a few years, for like 400 years. They lived as slaves. I don't know that we can imagine what the, like the, the mind, not, not just the bodily bondage, but the mental bondage when generation after generation after generation after generation after generation is dominated by the same thing. But God brings them out, and it's a picture of salvation, of course, because they come out finally through the blood of the Lamb. But after they come out of Egypt, the taskmasters that used to rule over them come chasing them. In a lot of ways, that's the way we feel sometimes in our Christian life. The blood of the Lamb has been applied. We're saved. But the things that used to bind us are chasing us. And like the children of Israel, we're very much afraid they're going to catch up and take us back into the house of bondage that God set us free from. But something happens. They come to the banks of the Red Sea. And God gives Israel this promise. The enemy that you see today you will see no more forever. Never again? How? It's been 400 years. Well, something's about to happen, Israel. And when this thing happens, the Egyptians will never again rule over you. What happens? Moses, stretch out your rod. Anticipating the cross. Put it over the waters. 
the Red Sea parts. So what does Israel do? Israel comes to the bank of the waters. Israel goes down into the water. When Israel's on the bank of the water, the Egyptians are just behind them. When Israel goes down into the water, God releases the pillar of fire, and the Egyptians, whew, they chase them down into the water as well. But when Israel comes out of the water, all the Egyptians that went into the sea, all of a sudden, the sea begins to collapse. And the Egyptians that went down, they didn't come back out. Israel goes to the water, the Egyptians come to the water. Israel goes under the water, the Egyptians go under the water. Israel comes out of the water, and the Egyptians never touch them again. Because through the waters of baptism, into the Red Sea of the blood of Jesus, everything that has chased you, and bound you, and held you, its power is destroyed forever. Now listen, 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 what happens in the waters of baptism? You go to the water, and everything that has had dominion over you follows you to the water. You step down in the water, and all of those Egyptians go with you. You go under the water. When you go under, they go under with you. But when you come out of the water, the body of sin is done away with, and the Egyptians that held you, they can't hold you anymore. Listen, tonight, we're talking about baptism, and we're also talking about the power of the gospel tonight you can believe you can receive and you can be set free i want to ask our prayer team to move into position and we're going to give an opportunity to respond i think for each of us there may be an area of application where we've tolerated affection for the world not realizing that that is no longer by obligation it is now by choice because in christ we no longer have the obligation to do what our sinful nature urges us to do. We can say no to the world and we can say yes to God. Just a moment, I want to give you an opportunity to respond in prayer. You can do that with our prayer teams. You can do that here at the altar. You can do that right where you are. But I believe it's appropriate for each of us tonight to say, God, every area of affection for the world, I, I let it go. I repent. Every area where I've been entangled with temptation, God, I come back to the cross with fresh reprint, repentance and I recognize that I am crucified with Christ. Father, that this entanglement doesn't have to last any longer, but through your Son, you've set me free. So let's pray tonight. Father, tonight we hear the good news of the gospel. Tonight we hear the words of John the Baptist. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We say yes and amen. May it be true, not just for the world, but for ourselves personally. We say yes to a death, to those things that we used to love. We say yes to a death, to the things that used to bind us and hold us. We say yes to the death of patterns and ways of thinking and taskmasters. We say yes to a death, but not just a death, a burial and a resurrection. Father, give us newness of life tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Tonight, this altar here at the front is open. Our prayer team.